The Montserrat Retreat Easter in the Meantime by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 The Mystery of the Trinity, the Person, and the Eucharist The theme of our gathering is the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And I hope what we've come to realize is that the stone that is being rejected is becoming the cornerstone, that this is a process that goes on in history and that we are in the midst of it. We started by asking why are we here and then asking where are we? So now I want to ask who are we? And I want to begin with a reminder about the prodigal son story. It seems to me the prodigal son story is supremely apropos to our time. The prodigal son was the son of a prosperous landowner who had two sons. One of them was loyal and the other wanted to cash out his inheritance. He already has his inheritance because he's the privileged son of, of a man of means. But he doesn't want to have it in the way that he has it. He wants to have it in another way. He has it as a gift from his father, as a constant ongoing gift from his father. He can enjoy the benefits of his inheritance all the time. But he doesn't want it under those circumstances. He wants it to have as his own, to dispense with as he pleases, not as a gift from another. He wants autonomy. So he asks to have his inheritance. He wants his, the Greek word is usia, his substance. It's also the word for being. He wants his being, his substance, his usia, to have as his own, dispense with as he pleases. And his father grants him the wish. He goes off, and before long, he has squandered it, uh, dissipated it, a life of uh, uh, meaninglessness, and finally he has to hire himself out to feed swine, and he's envious of them for what they're able to eat, and so on. He comes to himself, uh, Luke tells us in this story, and Jesus tells us in this story. Finally he comes to himself, and he thinks, how much better it was to receive my usia as a daily gift, as a daily bread from my father. So I must return and make uh, amends and ask for forgiveness and ask to be let in just to enjoy some little little thing on the side never of course to be back in my father's good graces but at least to apologize so he goes we're told that the father sees him a long way off now he's a long way off the father doesn't know he's been rehearsing this apology speech of his you know he practices it, and then he goes, and the father sees him a long way off. The father doesn't know why he's come. He may be coming to ask for a loan, you see. 
<laughs> Something like that. It doesn't matter. The father rushes to him. Now, in the time of this parable, uh, patriarchs didn't do that. Patriarchs stood in noble uh, regality and waited for the petitioner to come and so on and so forth. He doesn't do it. He doesn't behave uh, the way we would expect him to behave. He behaves like the Heavenly Father. He rushes, making a fool out of himself. The comic way to imagine this is his turbans flying off, his sandals. He loses one sandal. He doesn't care. That's his son. <laughs> Grabs him up. He gets there. His son starts his little rehearsed speech. The father cuts him off. Come here. This is a fantastic story. It's a story about the Heavenly Father. And it's a story about us. Because we, not only because we are inclined that way ourselves, but because the culture encourages, encourages, encourages us to demand our own usia and to do it on our own and to have it to use as we choose from moment to moment. So we are like the prodigal son and we have been for a long time in our culture. Remember this weekend we've been saying the culture is very important. We're influenced by the culture profoundly, and our culture has been encouraging this kind of individualism for a long time. And uh, the experience of the prodigal son has been replicated all over the place, and you can see it everywhere in today's world. Not so much the contrition and the decision to return to the father, but that, that dissipated, uh, lost, disoriented, uh, condition is very prevalent in our day. So with that in mind, let us think about what it means uh, to be a person. Because we have been, in our culture, encouraged to be individuals. Rene Girard has a term uh, which is interdividuals. He says there are no real individuals in that strict sense. There are only interdividuals. We are entangled with one another. But the, the term person is even a richer, more profound term. And so I would like to reflect on that word for a few minutes. The word person, by the way, is a Christian word. It's our word. We in V, we, the royal we, we invented that word, not exactly, but we endowed it with philosophical and theological significance. Before Christianity took that word up, it was utterly trivial. Uh, but it was taken up in the Christological and Trinitarian uh, controversies of the first few Christian centuries and made into an extremely important word. And it's very important for us today as prodigal sons and daughters uh, to reclaim that word and to, uh, and to understand what it means. It's a call we are called to personhood. As I said earlier in our gathering, we are persons from the moment of conception. The question about personhood is, it's there from the beginning. The actualization of its potential depends on us. But it is, we are endowed ontologically with personhood from the moment of conception. Nevertheless, it's, it is at the same time a vocation which we must actively uh, develop and encourage. The uh, Orthodox theologian Paul Eve Dokhamov 
says the person is the event of Christianity. The discovery of personhood is the event of Christianity. And Romano Guardini, uh, the great German uh, theologian 20th century, philosophical theologian of 20th century, uh, said that the concept of the person, the reality of the person, cannot be understood fully except in light of the faith of Christianity. And if Christianity dies or withers, the concept of the person, the reality of the person, the experience of the person, will die and wither with it. That without Christianity, it will be lost. We will revert back to something else. We will have lost the mystery of the person. And I think this helps us explain why about 100 years ago or 150 years ago, we had to invent psychology as a discipline. Uh, that is to say, something happened. It's, it seemed like we got along pretty well without it for a long time. We also got along without anthropology for a long time. Uh, but at about the same time, we decided we needed one, both of those disciplines. We suddenly discovered there was some, something called culture, and we needed to understand it. And we also suddenly discovered that the psychological states of people, there were a lot of people who were experiencing very troubling psychological afflictions. Something had come loose. Uh, we were at that moment when we are realizing we're prodigal sons and daughters. Uh, we have tried to do it on our own in some way. We have followed the Cartesian, uh, Rousseau-esque, um, Kantian idea of the, of the individual, and we had come to the end of our rope. Let's go back and try to reclaim what it means to be a person. The word person, as you know, is, uh, go back to the Latin word persona, which means the mask the actor wears on stage. The Greek version of that is prosopon. And it's uh, striking that in the Christological and, and Trinitarian controversies of the first centuries, uh, Christians would have chosen these words. In the Greek part of Christianity, there was a preference for the word hypostasis, which is more philosophically nuanced, and so on. But at some point it was agreed that the, the Latins, who were, who were not the deep thinkers of the time, uh, it was okay for them to use persona, as long as there was a little asterisk by it, at the bottom of the page it says, this is a synonym for hypostasis. <laughs> Just to keep the Latins from slipping back into something else. But still it's quite remarkable that these words, prosopon in Greek and persona in Latin, would be used for something as, as profound as the personhood of the persons of the Trinity. We use, the, the term comes into play precisely when we begin to think about the Trinity. And so how, how strange. The loftiest of all ideas, of all uh, religious uh, concepts, and the, the humblest of words, persona. So what does that mean, persona? Originally, persona... You know, in the Greek 
theater, in the Greek theater, the mask was only secondarily designed to portray the, the character that was being acted because people were sitting way, way back. It was primarily designed to amplify the voice. It was shaped so that... Now, the word persona originally means pair through sonare to sound. The persona was the mask that through which the voice reaches the audience. So that's the term that we Christians use uh, to talk about uh, the Trinity and to later on to talk about ourselves. Now, one of the most fascinating discussions of this issue come from a Greek, uh, Greek Orthodox theologian, uh, John Zizioulis, who was, I think, perhaps the first or one of the first that I knew about, who actually looked at this word and says, you know, this is very strange. We should try to get to the heart of this. Is this just accidental or what? So he says, what is the relationship between the actor's mask, which we think of as pure superficiality, uh, and the mystery of the person? And then he says this. I'm going to quote to you a little passage. First of all, he says it, that we went to the theater, the, the place of superficiality in a way, and, and borrowed this term. He says, what is the relationship between the actor's mask and the mystery of the person? And then he says, as a result of the mask, the actor acquired a certain taste of freedom. I have a friend in Seattle, and she studied theater in college many years ago. And she said, when her drama teacher was trying to teach people to be dramatic and more or less spontaneous and so on, there would be some people in the class who were hesitant and shy and couldn't quite get into it. He'd give them a mask. And then suddenly they could, they could perform because they were inside that persona and it freed them. So Zizula says, as a result of the mask, the actor acquired a certain taste of freedom, a certain hypostasis. Hypostasis, uh, to make a long story short, uh, means what one is standing on, what one is grounded in, the ground of one's being. So the actor is given a mask, and it's the mask of Creon or, or Antigone or something. Uh, but uh, when the actor is inside that mask, he's Creon. He has a hypostasis. He's grounded in the other, and therefore he's free, partially and temporarily. That's what Zizio is saying. But nevertheless, we should see this for what it is. As a result of the mask, the actor acquired a certain taste of freedom, a certain hypostasis, a certain identity which the rational and moral harmony of the world in which he lives denies him. As a result of the mask, he has become a person, albeit for a brief period, and has learned to exist as a free, unique, and unrepeatable entity. He has become a person because he has taken on this other identity which is an identity defined by 
something coming through. He himself has become the personare, the, the, the instrument through which another is sounding. And that is the source of his personhood. In other words, he has for a few moments ceased to come in his own name. One of the most wonderful things in the gospel is Jesus saying, if I had come in my own name, you would receive me. But because I come in another's name, in the name of the Father, you reject me. To come not in one's own name is to be a person in the full Christian sense of the term. And this is precisely the mystery of our faith and the mystery of our existence because Christian disciples exist to be persons in precisely that sense. To have have Christ come into the world through them. Each of us is a little tiny sacrament through which the mystery of Christ comes into the world in an utterly unique way. In an utterly unique way. Each one of us... Uh, inflects that mystery in terms of our situation, our personality, our gifts, our faults, our, our limitations. All of those things are part of the kaleidoscope of, of Christ coming into the world in utterly unique ways. But it's Christ passing through that makes it possible for us to be a person. And when we try to come in our own name, we join the prodigal son in his folly. You see, we try to have our usia on our own, in our pocket, uh, to do with as we will, rather than have it come through us like that. Uh, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. St. Paul says, I live now, no longer I, but Christ lives in me. Uh, These are definitions of the Trinitarian and the Christological uh, form of existence. Uh, So uh, in Christ we have mutual indwelling. The mutual indwelling of the Son and the Father in the Trinitarian uh, experience and then the mutual indwelling in a Christian as in Paul. I live now not I but Christ lives in me. That's the mystery of the Christian existence. The uniqueness of the Christian existence. And I would say uh, the, the word consubstantial, it, it, it plays a role in a number of places in our uh, Christian thinking, but it simply means to be, to be to, substantial is to be standing on what is, to be grounded, the ground of one's being. To be substantial is to be grounded in the ground of one's being. To be consubstantial uh, is to be uh, at one with the other, to be ultimately indistinguishable as Paul was with Christ, uh, to be consubstantial. Jesus is consubstantial with the Father. And you and I, to the extent that we take up our Christian vocation, are consubstantial in some mysterious way with Christ. And this will lead us into our discussion in the final session, which has to do with the Eucharist. But we might also say there's always an apocalyptic element 
that when Jesus says, uh, if those who do not gather with me will be scattered, it, uh, that plays out not only socially and culturally, but also psychologically. Uh, he has called us into our true existence as persons. And to the extent that we behave like the prodigal son and insist on doing it on our own, our lives will be not consubstantial, but insubstantial. I always invoke Hans Urs von Balthasar. He makes a marvelous connection between the person, the mission, and grace. These things are always together. He has a, he has a reference someplace where he says there is no grace without a mission. And the person is, is one who has been given a mission. It may, be, it may be the most almost invisible mission. It may be the mission that my Trappist friends have, which is to make jam and to pray for everybody. <laughs> you see what I mean? And it may be the mission of raising up children. That's the hardest mission of all. Uh, it can be all kinds of missions, most subtle and most obvious. But to be a person in that full Christian sense is to be a missionary, is to be a conduit, a personare, uh, someone through whom the word the word comes into the world. And to have a mission is to is to be graced. So von Balthasar says, "There's no grace without mission." These two things come together. So. What is going on in the world, to, to go back to the theatrical uh, vocabulary that the, the fathers used to adjudicate these Christological and Trinitarian things, to go back to the, voca- the theatrical vocabulary and to connect again with von Balthasar's massive work, uh, he talks about the theodrama. What is happening in history is the theodrama, the breaking in on fallen humanity of the of the drama of Christian redemption. And we'd have no idea where we are in that drama. It may the drama may end tomorrow, the end of the world may happen. We don't know. We know that the that history has a beginning and history has an end and and we simply don't know where we are in that drama. But we know we have a role in the drama. And we discern that role by looking at our situation, going into prayer consulting day by day by day, you know, never never quite knowing is pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. <laughs> yeah. never, it's always changing. I had a friend who, when he was a young priest, he was in his rectory, was an elderly priest, and at breakfast one morning he said to the older priest, when did you decide to be a priest? And he said, this morning when I got up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is this is how it is. It's we, you know uh, daily bread. You know, give us this day our daily bread. So that's what it means. But it's the it's a theodrama. All of us have a role to play. And then there is not only the role that we play, but uh, the choreography involved in that role, because it's improvisational which is all the more dicey in, in, the sense that, in the sense that we don't have it scripted. The Holy Spirit blows where he will. 
and the choreography is that I am trying to play out my role in the, a social setting where others are trying to play out their role. And so we have to, we have to read each other's cues, uh, make the right move, and make our mark on where we're supposed to be and point in this direction. And it's, it's, incre- it's incredibly liberating. I think this goes back to Zizioulis' thing. He experiences a freedom because he's not coming in his own name. He's there. And when we aren't coming in our own name, it's an enormous liberation. Okay, well, we come in this final session to the source and summit of our faith, which is the Eucharist. I sometimes, to make a segue from where we were, I sometimes like to talk about, after we introduce the idea of the person in its full Christian sense, I like to say that we are, to to use a a popular usage these days, e-mail, e-commerce, e-whatever it is. So I have this concept of the e-persons. We are e-as Christians, we are e-persons. And there's no end to uh, how you could differentiate this. I like to begin with engendered because we are male and female. Uh, that's a distinction that is uh, not to be ignored. It's part of the choreography of life. But at the same time, we are ecclesial persons. We are not on our own, independent. We are part of that choreography of the church. We are evangelical because we are called to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we are eschatological persons. That is to say, we are persons who see a horizon beyond this life. And that means so much to us as we orient ourselves in this life. But above all and supremely, we are Eucharistic persons. So here in our last session, I would like to have us think about that. At the beginning of John's Gospel, uh, John the Baptist gestures towards Jesus and the two disciples of John. Uh, you know, John the Baptist, from all we know, uh, was not in the habit of being deferential to others. <laughs> and in this case, he was. And it must have struck his disciples as rather unique. So they probably thought, well, I'd li- like to learn more about that person. So they dutifully went over to Jesus, and in my Monty Python version, uh, they rehearse some little speech so that they won't make a fool of themselves in front of this uh, obviously very impressive rabbi. Uh, So they think of some profound thing to say, to question him about some scripture or something. Uh, But before they're able to get it out, kind of like the way it is with the prodigal son and the father, before they're able to get it out, Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want? And uh, you, we could inflect that in a different way, you know. The, what do you really want, or so on and so forth. But in any event, in my Monty Python version, he catches them off guard. And they forget their little speech. They don't know quite what to say. And one of them blurts out, where do you live? Incredibly stupid comment. I mean, uh, you can imagine the other disciples saying, why did he say that? We, we look like such hicks. <laughs> <laughs> What's he going to think of us? 
you know, how's the weather or something like that. Where do you live? Of course, it's the author of John's Gospel is writing this so that it has a deep, profound meaning. The meaning is, where do you, where do you abide? And this is the profound question. So they ask it at a superficial level. Jesus answers it at a profound level. And he says, come and see. So you can't, to mix the stories here, Merton has a marvelous poem called Grace's House. Grace's House is up on that sunlit green hill. And and between her house and our Coney Island (laughs) is the uncrossed crystal water. You can't get there from here. So he says, Grace's mailbox is stuffed with valentines, but there is no road to Grace's house. (laughs) Well, it doesn't quite fit the story I'm telling, but in any event, Jesus says, where do you abide? He he isn't going to say, well, here's where I abide. You have to come and see. The answer to the question is he abides in the will of the Father. He abides in the love of the Father. But they wouldn't know what that means, so he says, come and see. Stay close to me. Watch. You'll see. It'll begin to dawn on you. So the question, uh, where do you abide? At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus has uh, been crucified, and he has risen, or there's a rumor that he has risen. But again, you realize how authentic the gospel uh, account is. Because the empty tomb was nothing but disturbing. And even the indications of some appearance wasn't convincing. They didn't know what to make of it. In any case, these are two disciples who have learned of the empty tomb and so on. And they don't know what to make of it. But they feel that the, that the mission is over, that it was a failure. And so they just have to go put their lives together. So they're leaving Jerusalem, which had become a very dangerous place for people who were, who were friends and disciples of Jesus. So they're going back home uh, to Emmaus to put their lives together and get on with uh, the way things were before they encountered this man. They're going along and Jesus joins them. They don't recognize him because it's the risen Christ. The transfigured and risen Christ is, isn't recognizable. It's, it's clearly him, but he's, He's, he's different in some way. He asks them what they're talking about. They tell him all about what's going on. And then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them Scripture. He told them, taught them how to read Scripture in light of himself. It's all about preparing for himself and what just happened. Was it not necessary that the Son of Man should be crucified and and uh, risen, and so on. They don't quite know what to do with this, except there's something about him. Did our hearts not burn when he talked to us on the road? So they get to Emmaus, and he makes as if to go on. This is wonderful. He's just going to go on, and they have to make a decision. At that point, they have to make a decision. We live in a world where we like to make choices, and we like to... We don't want to make any choice that rules out any other choices. So all our, we maximize choice, but we never make a decision because a decision minimizes choice. Well, they have to make a decision because he's going to go on. So they say, stay with us. Abide with us. 
So here's this word again. How does he abide? That's the question. Where does he abide? With the Father. And under what circumstances will he abide with us? So they sit down at the meal. And he breaks bread and blesses it. And they recognize him. In the breaking of the bread. And he vanishes. Vanishes not because he has ceased to abide with them, but because he has left them with the understanding of how he will abide with them, precisely in that breaking of the bread. He said he would not leave us orphans. And what does he leave us? A great long list of uh, things to do, uh, a great long list of the ways to organize our lives and rules to obey and so on and so forth. No. He leaves us. He who came into the world in a smelly cow shed and left the world on the, as a publicly executed criminal left us something equally dubious in a way as his abiding place. A little piece of bread and a little sip of wine. At the Last Supper, when he prepares his disciples and us for his uh, departure, he says, you have wanted to take part in my life. You want to enter into this mystery with me, the mystery of the Son and the Father. You want to enter into that by way of the Holy Spirit. You want to enter the Trinitarian drama. Or put it another way, you want to get out of Egypt because they're celebrating Passover. If you want out of Egypt, he says there's only one way out. I'm going to show you how to get out of Egypt. This piece of bread is my life. This is my body. He's a good Jew. He's not a Greek philosopher. Body means life. This is my life. Watch carefully. This is, as many of you know, my Monty Python version. Watch carefully. This is my life. You want to be part of it? Here's how it works. You take it. You give thanks for it because it's a gift. You receive it as a gift. It doesn't belong to you. The one who gave it to you wants it back. You receive it. You give thanks. And then you break it and you give it away. There's a wonderful painting of the Last Supper which shows all the disciples. It's just a hubbub. It says they're totally confused. Jesus is looking straight into the straight ahead as though, oh my gosh, they're never going to get it. <laughs> so he has to repeat it. In my version, he has to repeat it. Okay, because down at the end they're saying, what did he mean by that, I wonder? So he says, this is my life. This is my, my body, my life. You want to be part of it, here's how it works. You break it or you let it be broken, and you give it away. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. That is to say, enter into that exchange where you offer your life. That's how you enter into the Trinity. And he takes the cup of wine and he says, this is my blood. 
This is the cup of my suffering, which will be suffered for you. Drink it. Do this. When suffering happens, take part in the, in the redemption of the world. Make up for what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. You will suffer as I will tomorrow afternoon. But when you do, make sure that you are making up for what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. You can enter into the drama. This is how you enter into that drama. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, of course it means to reenact. I love so much when Father Tetlow begins Mass by saying, this holy act we are entering into. It's an action and it's a drama. And we're given an opportunity to enter that drama uh, at every at every Eucharist. Now, there's an anthropological uh, feature to this which should be noted. You know, the first Christians were accused of being cannibals by their pagan contemporaries because they talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. It's a very explicit language. In the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is very explicit, so explicit that all his, his, he thins out the disciples and his, his followers tremendously. He makes some mention of uh, eating my flesh and drinking my They said, wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute now. And you would think that he would say, oh, well, I just meant a, me- let me, it's a metaphor, let me explain it. No, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. So it's very radical. And they all want to go, and he says to, to the disciples, you want to go too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So it's very radical. Eat. Take that in. And now why something like that? Why not something a little more respectable, a little more esoteric, a little more theological, for goodness sakes, at least? You see? Why a piece of bread, a sip of wine? If you think of the Eucharistic uh, imagery, drinking blood, eating flesh, uh, what's fascinating about that? is the, there's an anthropological reading in the New, New Testament which is quite profound. It's not, it doesn't replace a pious reading or an exegetical reading, but it's one of the ways in which you can ferret out implications. It's a lens through which you can see the text. If you look at this anthropologically, we know uh, pretty clearly that the first uh, cultural uh, configurations were accompanied, the, the initial act was this scapegoating violence and accompanied by delusions and almost certainly accompanied by uh, sparagmos, the tearing apart of the sacrificial victim and the eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood of the sacrificial victim in the frenzy. Well, that's the origin of human culture. And in the Eucharistic event, we have the eating of flesh and drinking of blood. At the end, by biblical standards, at the end of history, we have the Messianic banquet, which is another eating. Of course, we also have the eating of the fruit of the tree in the garden. Uh, 
But just this, at an anthropological level, a, a an event, which is really the first course of the Messianic banquet, but it's it's configured exactly the way a, a primordial cannibalistic event would be. So you have an event that is in the, at the center of history at all times. The Eucharistic table is always at the center of history. It looks back to the most primordial event, and it's an anticipation of the Messianic banquet at the end. So at any given time, any given uh, point in history, the Eucharist is right at the center of history. So there's a universal aspect to this. Everybody is going to have an opportunity to take part in the drama of salvation, making up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ and handing our lives over. But at the same time, all of us eat. Not all of us think. <laughs> not, not all of us theologize. <laughs> you see me? Not all of us are very smart, but we all eat. And this has to do with the, the simplest act of life. Anyone can approach the Eucharist and welcome Christ into their life in a quite literal way. There's nothing esoteric about it. There's nothing metaphorical about it. There's nothing symbolic about it. It's bringing Christ into... And he chose this most humble, shocking really, Dante has a wonderful thing at the beginning of the Paradiso where he says, he likens his own poem to this great ship that's going out to the deep waters. See, that's the paradise, it's the deep water. Comes through the inferno and the purgatorial. Now we're going into the deep waters. And he says to his readers, he says, you're following along in this little skiff of this little, you know, canoe trying this great poem of mine, you're trying to keep up with it. He says, if you have not eaten of the bread of angels, turn back. Because I'm going into the deep waters and you can't you, you shouldn't go there unless you've eaten of the bread of angels. Panis Angelicus, that's the Eucharist. Now my interpretation of that is that if the idea of Christ inhabiting a little piece of bread and coming physically, literally into our bodies and into our lives. If that idea, if your commitment to a kind of sterile rationality is such that you cannot embrace that idea, you're not going to understand the paradiso. You see what I mean? If you cannot comprehend the simplicity and the literal truth of that, the real presence of Christ in that piece of bread. You cannot understand the great Christian mysteries that Dante tries to explore in the Paradiso. It's that simple. It's so simple it's scandalous. It's so simple that the learned uh, are put off by it. That the, the simple or those who have poverty of spirit are able to welcome that and and to celebrate it. So thanks to what we rather clumsily call the transubstantiation, or we used to, I don't, you know, we're trying to probably refine our vocabulary in this regard, but thanks to that we have 
the physical entree into a consubstantial life. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me quite literally. You see, we can walk back from receiving the Eucharist to our to our pew. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. And comes into me, and comes into me, and comes into me. Every time laying down more, uh, insinuating himself more into my life. Uh, taking my life over. Using me as that personare, that instrument. All the more as I begin to relax. As I begin to relax. And let him play the music and uh, do the choreography and so on. So that my life, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me.